KPBS On Demand is supported by the Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego, offering visitors to the La Jolla campus special exhibitions, collection galleries, coastal vistas, seaside dining, and more. MCASD.org. Good morning. I'm Kinsey Moreland sitting in today for Annika Colbert. It's Wednesday, March 17th. The devastating toll the pandemic has had on our small business community. We'll have that story next, but first, the local headlines. Finally, the news lots of business owners have been waiting for. San Diego County is moving back into the less restrictive red tier today. That will allow limited indoor operations of businesses like restaurants, movie theaters, and gyms. The county's testing positivity rate is now at 6.8 per 100,000 residents, which is indeed low enough to move us out of the purple after months being stuck in the state's most restrictive tier. And the Board of Supervisors unanimously agreed yesterday to ask the state to let a local school that houses and educates foster youth to stay open for a bit longer. The San Pasquale Academy in Escondido is slated to close in October due to a change in state and federal funding plus declining enrollment. Described as a first-in-the-nation residential educational campus designed specifically for foster youth, County supervisors said they will ask the state to keep the school open through June of 2022. Okay, so in case you missed the news, California on Monday opened the coronavirus vaccine to those with high-risk medical conditions, including those who are overweight. And San Diego County's definition of overweight is actually far more liberal than the state's definition. And that means lots of San Diegans now qualify for the vaccine. Pro tip, if you go online, search for a BMI calculator, input your weight and height, you might get a result that is higher than 25. And if you do, you qualify for a vaccine. Honestly, folks, a BMI of 26 or 27, you probably don't even look overweight. So even if your ego is standing in the way, you might want to just run the numbers, double check. I personally know a lot of people who've got their first shots this week through San Diego's loose definition of overweight. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, of course, says people who are overweight have an increased risk when it comes to COVID-19. From KPBS, you're listening to San Diego News Now. Stay with me for more of the local news you need. KPBS On Demand is supported by the Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego, offering visitors to the La Jolla campus special exhibitions, collection galleries, coastal vistas, seaside dining, and more. MCASD.org. As part of our series, Pandemic Life One Year On, KPBS investigates reporter Claire Trageser tells us about the devastating toll the pandemic has had on small businesses. She says business closures mean lost jobs, lost family wealth, an afraid community fabric. My grandfather started in 1941. Uh, in those days, it was a small appliance store where he sold radios and phonographic records and all kinds of small appliances. A&B Sporting Goods had been in Greg Schloss's family for 80 years. And uh, I've worked there for 40 years. So I was, I think, 22 when I started working there. The store was in good shape heading into 2020. It had orders from youth sports teams, including the entire North Park Little League. And then the uh, pandemic hit, and I knew I was in trouble immediately. 
I, uh, they, the local Little League played one game and then canceled the rest of the season. All the high school sports were closed and um, I knew I was in trouble. And, uh, but I tried to keep a positive attitude and work my way through it. But, uh, you know, I knew that, that I was gonna have to make a, a difficult decision and I waited all the way till the end of the year to, you know, make the decision that I needed to make. In January, he closed A&B's doors. Stories like Schloss's have become all too familiar during San Diego County's pandemic year. Thousands have closed for good, while countless others are barely holding on as they ride a roller coaster of openings and closings. COVID-19's final toll on San Diego's economy will take years to calculate, says Eduardo Velasquez, the research director at the San Diego Regional Economic Development Corporation. It may very well be that we won't actually know for, for a long period of time really how big the impact has been in terms of the, the permanent firm closures and the true job losses associated with that. But he says a few trends are already clear. Retail and hospitality will be impacted the most, and small businesses are more likely to fall into those sectors. A typical small business really only has about 14 or 15 days of cash on hand to cover their operations. So what that means is, is if they have to shut their doors or you know, stop serving their customers for more than two weeks, they burn through all their, their cash reserves and all of a sudden they're behind on every bill that they have to pay. This, of course, means massive job losses. Since February 2020, 580 businesses have notified the San Diego Workforce Partnership of layoffs or furloughs, accounting for 90,000 employees. In a typical year, the partnership receives 100 to 150 such notices. And the closure of businesses goes beyond the financial impact, says Rachel Murfallen, the nonprofit's director of business services. It's not only an, a financial impact, but it's a relationship and sort of emotional, very emotional decision for them about um, having to consider potentially sacrificing certain things on the family side in order to save the business. Um, and there have been quite a few business owners who have made significant personal investment back into their business to keep it running. That's true of Veronica Densi, who owns the massage business Nola San Diego in the East Village. I've got three daughters, you know, and I had to like dip into their college fund a little bit. And I'm just like, OK, well, this has to stop um, because I can't bankrupt my family with no other answers. And Marabella Estrada, who owns El Toro Grill Taqueria in City Heights. She says she's barely holding on, but wants to keep the business to pass on to her children. So they can grow up with the business and they can continue and having something. Doesn't mean that they have to uh, be in the restaurant all the time and not get in a career, you know? But they have something already so they can start, you know? Family businesses are a big source of generational wealth, particularly for immigrants and ethnic minorities, says Juan Pablo Pardo Guerrera, an associate professor of sociology at UC San Diego. They're better at spanning local networks, so they're better at communicating with people inside the neighborhoods, for example, and attracting customers on the basis of the connections that families have made. And they do not require massive capital investments. So part of the the advantages of small businesses is that they become assets um, and 
they can be uh, passed on to other generations uh, as assets. This is not the same as with employment. You can't sort of leave your job to your kids. And like with so many of the ills brought by the pandemic, businesses owned by people of color have suffered disproportionately. A nationwide study found that since the onset of the pandemic, Black and Latino business ownership dropped by 41 percent and 32 percent, respectively. Meanwhile, white business ownership dropped by 17 percent. Businesses owned by uh, minorities tend to have less resources. So in a moment of crisis, they're less likely to survive. When businesses like Estrada's City Heights restaurant close, the impact on the neighborhood goes far beyond the services they provide, Pardo Guerra says. So this is something that will and can possibly fundamentally reshape the way we experience the city. Neighborhoods that have more small businesses that are owned by Black and Hispanic owners will likely see more businesses that fail because of how the crisis is affecting them. And that means less revenue generation in those particular neighborhoods. It means less services for people who live in those neighborhoods, also less availability of local employment. And all these negative economic outcomes in the long run translate into or lead to um, sort of worse educational outcomes, worse career prospects. The pandemic and its massive upheaval of small businesses should be a wake-up call and a chance for regional leaders to show they value those businesses, says Enrique Gandaria, the director of the City Heights Business Association. We want dynamic communities uh, with many different types of businesses. Uh, we, f- we tend to forget that small businesses are the biggest employer in this country, bigger by far than any other corporation. And so we can't ignore them. We need to support them. For Schloss, the owner of AB Sporting Goods, it's too late. He was unable to get a PPP loan because he didn't have any employees. And while he got $3,000 in a city small business grant, that covered less than one month's expenses. His store in North Park now sits vacant, and he's left wondering what to do next. I uh, thought that I would feel much differently than I do now. I thought that I would feel like there's a huge uh, weight being lifted off of my shoulders, and it has been financially. But as far as um, knowing what's next for me, I'm still, I feel like I'm floating around in a boat to a certain extent because I'm a routine-oriented person. I went to the store every day at 7.30 in the morning for 40 years. So that's, um, that's a difficult um, routine to, um, you know, to stop all of a sudden. And that story from KPBS investigative reporter Claire Trageser. Claire also teamed up with KPBS video journalist Nick McVicker to produce a collection of really powerful first-person stories from local business owners. Today, we hear from Veronica Densi. She's an Army veteran who owns the massage therapy business NOLA in San Diego's East Village. During a deployment, I was injured, and um, that injury pretty much ended my career. A friend of mine was like, well, come on, let's do yoga because yoga fixes everything. And I was like, okay, let's do yoga. So I did it and I struggled through the entire class and I was upset and angry. And um, the yoga instructor comes outside and he was like, 
You know, I'm also a massage therapist. I was seven and a half months pregnant and I came home one day and I looked at my husband and I'm like, we're starting a business. And he was like, what, when, where? And I was like, now, I'm finding a place today. So we got all our stuff in here. We moved in here, everything was perfect. And then the world stopped. So that first shutdown, you know, no, no, no debate from me, you know, on it. No problem, <laughs> not a big deal. I mean, it ended up being a really big deal. It was like seven or eight months, right? So um, that was rough. And then we got like a glimmer of hope around Thanksgiving. Christmas is a huge time for us. And then, you know, with Valentine's Day around the corner, it's huge, huge, huge time, right? So um, we, we invested thousands of dollars to prepare for Christmas. You know, it was amazing. And uh, we were open three days in December. I mean, people, I feel like overuse the word essential, but um, massage is essential for people. I had clients calling in tears, crying. You know, please, please, you know, come to my house, you know, do something because they live with chronic pain. And that's what, that's what we deal with. I don't know that me being a black owned uh, business makes a difference to like my non-black clients, you know? I think that we build a good enough rapport with them that they just want to be here, you know? Um, to my black clients, I think it makes a huge difference. Um, to be honest, it's, it's, about, it's just about trust. It's about um, people understanding. I'm a disabled veteran, right? So I was using my disability to try to pad, you know, just so that I wasn't like $20,000 in back rent, you know? Um, because I had the hope of being able to open back up one day. And um, doing that, I can't lie, I was dying a little <laughs> inside every time I wrote that check because I was wondering if I was throwing this money away and um, I didn't even know if we would ever open again. And then um, it got to a point where maybe once or twice I had to like dip into like my kid's college fund, I've got three daughters, you know? And I had to like dip into their college fund a little bit and I'm just like, okay, well, this has to stop um, because I can't bankrupt my family with no other answers. Tomorrow, we continue our series on the one-year anniversary of the pandemic with a story about how the virus will impact transportation in San Diego in both the short and long term. So as I mentioned in the headlines, as of today, San Diego is finally out of the purple tier and into the red tier. That means less restrictions and more openings. KPBS reporter Matt Hoffman talked to local businesses about the shift and their hopes for the future. It's a lifeline. I think uh, it's an opportunity to um, at least stay afloat. Ted Caplaneris owns the Old Townhouse Restaurant, which has been a staple in Ocean Beach since 1973. It's my family's legacy, and uh, it's, it's, uh, it's my passion, and I, I really care about the business. So I think about the business day and night. It's a part of me, and I, I don't want it, I would never want it to go away. 
But starting a year ago, the pandemic changed everything. It's been devastating. We're down by like two thirds. Um, we've been struggling to stay afloat. Kaplanaris has put some tables outside and he says moving to takeout was not easy. Moving to the state's less restrictive red reopening tier now means that his dining room can reopen at 25% capacity. I'm, I'm looking forward to serving customers and um, to seeing the same people that we used to see. Leaving the purple tier also means that gyms can once again move back indoors at 10% capacity. We are hopeful that that all happens tomorrow. Um, our members are amazingly excited because obviously we have this very vast, beautiful space. Brian Welch is general manager of Point Loma Sports Club, which has more than 20,000 square feet of indoor space. Our intent was to take this year and just make sure the doors stay open make sure members you know, are safe. The club has adapted during the pandemic, adding this outdoor workout space that members have really grown to enjoy. But recent winter storms have presented some challenges. Things you wouldn't think of, but windstorms and rainstorms. Welch is planning to reopen indoors this week while still keeping the outdoor setup. Like it just feels like it's optimism in the air. And I feel like between the vaccinations and kind of really targeting vulnerable populations, um, it's working. It's not just gyms and restaurants. When was the last time you went to a movie theater? They too are allowed to reopen indoors at a limited capacity. Moving to the red tier also means more schools will be opening in San Diego. And if we keep on the current trend after April 1st, theme parks and stadiums can once again start welcoming guests at a limited capacity. That means fans in the stands at Petco Park. San Diego Padres officials say they have been making preparations to welcome people back and expect to do so for the upcoming season that's now just days away. Matt Hoffman, KPBS News. Coming up, asylum seekers camped out at our border. That story after a quick break. We're back. And almost a month after the Biden administration launched a program to process some asylum seekers along the southern border, hundreds of people are now camped outside of the San Ysidro port of entry. KPBS reporter Max Rivlin-Nadler spoke with people there as they waited for their chance to claim asylum. Then he sat down with KPBS Midday Edition host Maureen Cavanaugh to unpack the story. Marjorie Rosales has been living in Tijuana for a year after fleeing Honduras with her daughter. Almost a month ago, she told me she would stay outside the San Ysidro port of entry for as long as it took for the Biden administration to allow her to claim asylum in the U.S. Last Friday, she was still there. KPBS On Demand is supported by the Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego, offering visitors to the La Jolla campus special exhibitions, collection galleries, coastal vistas, seaside dining, and more mcasd.org. She said it's been tough because of the rain. Her clothes are now wet. There's been freezing temperatures at night and in the morning. Rosales is not alone. Hundreds of other asylum seekers are now camped out at El Chaparral, a plaza on the Mexican side of the San Ysidro port of entry. They're some of the thousands of asylum seekers stuck in Tijuana, who have been prevented from applying for asylum in the United States because of a Trump-era rule barring their entry. The Biden administration, for the most part, has kept that rule in place, citing the pandemic. That leaves thousands of asylum seekers, many who don't qualify to be processed under the Biden program, without any idea of when they'll be allowed into the U.S., and camping out, waiting for information. 
those that have decided to remain to stay uh, are going to remain until they have answers. Ian Philibaum is with Innovation Law Lab, which advocates on behalf of asylum seekers. In the absence of a coordinated dissemination uh, and distribution of information about what that might look like is the number one reason that this camp currently exists. On Friday morning at the camp, there was a flurry of activity. A kitchen was distributing food, doctors from Tijuana were looking into the health of migrants, and school was in session, being led by asylum seekers who had been teachers in their home country. 26-year-old Evelyn Sanchez is one of the teachers. She said she feels that the children experience stress because of the situation they're living through, and it's a way for them to relax. In school, she said, they're not necessarily going to learn to write, learn letters or numbers. They're going to share with their fellow classmates. They share their life experiences. She feels that people like her are common in the camp, people with something to provide. She says they're educated people with principles, with values. And what they want for themselves is what they want for their children. And if they're there in Mexico, they're not just a nuisance or society's garbage. They're simply migrants and they have rights. Rights the same as everyone else. In the first few days of the camp, security was an issue, as provocateurs and traffickers spread misinformation. Now the camp is watched over by a group of volunteers, including Marco Garcia, also from Honduras. He said that when he came to the camp, he saw the need, that no one was taking care of them. So he took initiative and got a safety vest and put it on. When people saw he was helping, they joined in. While many asylum seekers in the camp are from Central America, especially Honduras, there are people from across the world, including many Haitians, some of whom have recently arrived in Tijuana as the political situation in their country continues to deteriorate. Jean-Claude Jean spent five years in Chile after being targeted by organized crime in Haiti. He told me that his mother had already been killed by people looking for him. For that reason, he came to Tijuana. If he arrived in Haiti today, tomorrow he'd be dead. Right now, the Biden administration is focused on finding shelter for the rising numbers of unaccompanied children arriving at the southwest border. I asked Marjorie Rosales, who wants to be at the port of entry the second a change in policy is announced, if she would ever think about sending her young daughter, Angie, ahead without her. That's why she's here, she told me, to be legal. She's asking for help, and she's asking that Biden help her, her daughter, and every one of them there. She thinks that her daughter and her are in danger in Honduras and are very afraid of going back. She tells me she wants help or just some sort of plan to come soon. Joining me is KPBS reporter Max Revlin Nadler. Max, welcome. Good to be here. Now, the woman you profile in your story, Marjorie Rosales, is now living in a camp by the San Ysidro border. Where had she been living in Tijuana before this vigil? So she had been living in a series of shelters. She had been selling ice cream on the street. It was a very marginal and insecure situation. But she had given that up uh, over three weeks ago now to come to the border under the impression that she would be able to apply for asylum or at least get on a list that would help her apply for asylum that had been the informal way that people had gotten um, online to wait for asylum before the Trump administration effectively closed the border uh, a year ago. 
I think the status of the Biden border reforms is confusing at this point. There are some asylum seekers who've been allowed entry into the U.S. Isn't that right? Yeah, and it's not only confusing to us, it's confusing to asylum seekers as well. So the only people right now along the southwest border who can apply for asylum are people who have been sent back under the Remain in Mexico policy. This is ironic because the Remain in Mexico policy actually effectively ended asylum for a lot of people by saying that they had to stay in dangerous border cities while their court cases were processed in the United States. So only those people can apply. And right now, the numbers are still pretty low. Um, just a couple hundred people have been processed at the San Ysidro port of entry, and there's still thousands and thousands more that are waiting to be processed. People who are not put in remain in Mexico and people who have asylum claims that basically have never been interacted with by Customs and Border Protection, they're not eligible right now to apply for asylum because the border is still closed under this thing known as Title 42. So a lot of the people that are at this camp have never applied for asylum before. Right. And instead of the administration's attention being at San Ysidro or towards asylum seekers, right now it seems to be finding a way to house the increased number of unaccompanied children at the border. Can you tell us about that situation? Right. So one of the major changes that the Biden administration has already done is that they are no longer under Title 42, returning the vast majority or a good number of unaccompanied children back to Mexico. Under the Trump administration, under Title 42, if you were a child, no matter what age, the vast majority were just turned back to Mexico or turned back in other parts of Mexico. Right now, a lot of children are getting through. The big issue is that Border Patrol does not right now have the facilities to house this many children. So a lot of attention is being paid to the conditions once again, where it seems year after year, uh, there is a surge of children at the border and Border Patrol says they're not ready for this situation. And this has a lot of people asking questions. Why don't we learn from the last few times that this happened over how we can surge uh, resources to the border to allow for accommodations for children? There's been criticism uh, about how those children are being sheltered, comparing it even to Trump-era cages. Right. So there are certain rules that really dictate uh, and settlements and court rulings that dictate the treatment of children in Border Patrol custody. They're not supposed to stay there for longer than three days. They're supposed to be given shampoo. They're supposed to be given uh, cleanly products. And a lot of times that doesn't happen because a lot of times these are outposts deep in the desert. And Border Patrol actually has misused funds that were given to Border Patrol to uh, work with children to, to give them necessary equipment. Um, and spending it instead on things like ATVs and and kind of gizmos and gadgets for Border Patrol agents. So that was direct funding that Congress had given them that they misspent. So now these children are staying in these Border Patrol facilities that aren't equipped. And then they're, they're right now the Biden administration is trying to find a way to get them out of that sooner. Because for a lot of these kids, if they're eight, nine years old and you get asked, hey, where's your family in the U.S.? It's going to take a while to figure out how to reconvene you with your family or get you to a sponsor. And you're going to have to be in government um, custody for much longer than 72 hours. Now, when it comes to the people now waiting in the migrant camp near the San Ysidro border, is there really no U.S. plan right now to accept these asylum seekers? 
Right now there isn't, and this is unprecedented because the right now asylum effectively is closed at the U.S. border, and that's something that the Department of Homeland Security has said. It says the, the frontera is closed, the border is closed. So there is no plan right now, and a lot of these asylum seekers just want to be given a timeline. But right now the focus is on children and processing people who had been returned to Mexico. Now, your report, Max, gives us a glimpse into the lives of individuals waiting in this camp. These are human beings with talents and skills who have escaped terrible situations. Do you think that reality usually gets lost when we talk about migrants at the border? Absolutely. I think in terms of reporting, we need a lot more focus on why people are leaving and how this has really impacted every part of civil society in many of these countries, not only Central America, but Cameroon. Uh, These are global situations that the U.S. is intimately involved in. If you look at Central America, uh, you know, you can trace back a lot of the reasons why people are leaving to climate change, you know, governments that have been supported by the United States. This is a kind of a nuanced view of why people are leaving as opposed to people are just coming here for work or, you know, they think that they can make more money in the U.S. People are leaving for safety and opportunities and opportunities basically that they are being deprived of by not being able to apply for asylum at the very least to have their claims looked at because right now there is no process for them. I've been speaking with KPBS reporter Max Rivlin-Nadler and Max, thank you. Thank you. And that was the one and only Maureen Cavanaugh. She hosts KPBS Midday Edition, which, by the way, is another one of our podcasts. You can get it for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. And that is today's show. Thank you so much for spending your time with us. And look, word of mouth is still the best way for people to find out about podcasts. So if you appreciate this show, do me a big, huge favor. Just take out your phone, text one or two people right now, tell them about San Diego News Now. Thank you in advance. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year, we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, we've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com.